Tell us a bit about your way to becoming a litigation innovator and how the concept behind Premonition came to be. Uh, the short story is that I got sued a lot and it really pissed me off. Uh, America has a ridiculous amount of litigation. It's 95% of the world's lawsuits come from 5% of the world's population. I've been sued since like not having an elevator in a one-story shopping center that I own. And I used to do things like collect the lists of the best lawyers, which of course now I know are kind of bullshit and most of that's paid advertising. And there was one particular lawyer I'd hired who I'd meticulously researched and by all the kind of standard measures of a day should have been the best and was actually horrible. The only one I'd ever filed a bar complaint against. And I realized that I really didn't know what I was doing and neither did anybody else. And there was no objective measure of how much a lawyer won, which I thought, you know, <laughs> that must be somewhere. Uh, it turns out that they're not. Like a lot of the lawyer, sorry, case management software doesn't even have a field where you can put the outcome of the case in it. And I was talking to the MD of one of these companies, it's been around for 20 odd years, and you know, they have 70% share uh, in the UK. It's, why don't you have this outcome field? She said, well, no one's ever asked for it. Which <laughs> is crazy that as a profession, law doesn't keep track of case outcome wins and losses. Uh, so I figured, well, this is a data problem. If I can get the data, I can crunch it, I can find out who's winning, which cases in front of which judges. Uh, and getting the data was very difficult. Uh, there was no kind of central source for this. Um, it spread out over thousands of different courts. So we had to build a system that would gather this and do it all automatically and um, keep it all uh, normalized and make sure the quality stays up and so on and so forth. It's quite a complex undertaking. Um, which the industry at that time regarded as impossible. So therefore no one did it. In fact, for several years afterwards, people thought we were just kind of bullshitting, sitting down in Miami making up cases. <laughs> but um, we wound up in the odd position where we're the world's largest litigation database now, and we have more coverage than LexisNexis, Thomson Reuters, and Bloomberg combined. Well, thank you. But uh, was the introduction of AI into your system uh, within this idea in the first place, or was it uh, a subsequent addition? Uh, well, unfortunately, we're in this kind of industry where people call things AI, but really aren't AI. Um, and at the very most basic, definition of AI is just a simple algorithm. Uh, we do have some things in our system that are you know, machine learning and that kind of stuff, but for 98% of what we do, just a simple algorithm will tackle it. And yes, I could use machine learning to do that task, but it would actually be a lot slower and less precise. And it's kind of like using a, a sledgehammer to open a neck. Um, so, it's something that we've done later, but most of our stuff doesn't rely on machine learning. It doesn't need 
I got it. Thank you. Now, the next question. So, in one of your interviews, you've mentioned that legal tech is broken. Could you please elaborate on this notion? And what are the persistent problems with legal tech? And what are the potential solutions for those problems? Uh, yeah, I mean, legal tech is appalling. It's uh, a good 15 years behind fintech, for example. Uh, I was giving a speech in Australia and the, the subject was legal innovation. And uh, on the second slide, I, I said, sorry, I have the problem with this because there really isn't much innovation going on in legal technology at all. So the next slide up had uh, the words innovation in speech marks because people say that things are innovative, but they're not. Uh, and you know, we see all kinds of nonsense being touted around as being disruptive. Like this one company came to see us and they had the ability where you could videotape a deposition and I'm waiting for the punchline, but there just wasn't one. That was it. <laughs> and um, it's, it's just really, really bad. Uh, and there's a number of reasons for this. If you really want to get into the weeds on it, I wrote an article called uh, Why is Legal Technology So Bad? Uh, went viral, got 30,000 views in three days. And the main reason I see for this is, is the law firms themselves because law is still, for the most part, delivered on an hourly billing basis. There's a lot of kind of marketing offices of law firms say, no, 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 most of our stuff is, is not that, and it's alternative fee, and I have to call bullshit on that. The only place that I see that is in marketing material, uh, certainly not on billing statements. And the problem is that that actively discourages innovation and efficiency. Uh, there are some people in law firms called uh, innovation officers, and these people have a horrible job. Uh, most of it is kind of organizing window dressing type <laughs> activities for law firms, so the law firms can pretend to be top of the game technically, and some of them have incubators and make small investments in these firms that will come out with just trivial, crappy products that really no one uses. And <laughs> after a few drinks on a Friday night, they'll tell you the reason. If they use the product and it actually does make the process quicker and more efficient, i.e. it worked, then the partners don't want to use the product anymore because their billing goes down. So ironically, you wind up in in a situation where a successful product has no market, certainly in law firms. And when we're advising legal tech people, they say, you know, do you have any advice for us whatsoever? And I say, yes, do not do business with law firms. They'll keep the time, they'll waste your time, but you really need to talk to end users of law. So corporate litigation, those guys actually do care about results and, um, getting things done quickly but law firms is is not the market and unfortunately there's a lot of people stuck on the idea that you know this could be done better so therefore it will be um but that's not how it is it's, this could be done better and therefore it won't <laughs> be 
because the financial incentives are completely misaligned. All right, thank you. Uh, in this regard, can you think of a different financial motivation system instead of an hourly pay that would potentially incentivize innovation and faster cases solving and all these things? Yeah, I mean, on the plaintiff side, you see this with just quite simply that they don't get paid if they don't win. Uh, and also I see flat rate as being a, a good incentive. And people say, well, you know, it's litigation is different because every case is different and you don't know how long it's going to go on and what's going to come up. And that also is bullshit. While there are differences in cases, if you litigate a lot, you know roughly how long it costs. And unfortunately, if you go to a lawyer and say, I have this lawsuit, how much is it going to cost? They tell you it's going to be 25,000, and they know full well it's going to be 100. But they have to lie to you because they know that the other lawyers are going to lie as well. <laughs> so the guy that tells the truth isn't going to get the, the case. Uh, so I see making things flat fee. Every time I paid a lawyer by the hour, I've always been hugely disappointed. Every time I paid a lawyer on a flat fee, I've always been very pleased. Uh, the other thing which we are working on with some of our clients is if we know the case outcome and how much it wound up costing in terms of damages and things like that, and we know what the legal billing was, you can put all of those numbers together and come up with what I narcissistically call the uh, total operating budget yield or the Toby number. And <laughs> what that basically says is, is how much value has that lawyer created? So for every dollar you paid them, how much value did they create for you? So if you're on the plaintiff side and someone gets a judgment and then they're taking a third of it, their total number is going to be three. They created three dollars of value for every dollar they charge you. And this is great because finally you have a defense lawyer whose incentives are aligned with yours. So he could say something like, look, I guarantee you a total number of 1.8 or I guarantee you a two and anything I get above that, I split. How about that? And then they're kind of incentivized to actually get the case over quickly because they want their billing to be low. And also it means that if you have a case that's saying where the result was not good, and you're looking at a total number of 0 0.9. So you paid them a dollar and they only created 90 cents of value. Then you both know that that guy isn't going to get hired again. And it's, let's say it's a $10,000 case. It's in their interest to call you up and say, you know, I don't feel I got as good an outcome for you as I would like. So I would like to give you back $1,500. And now they have a positive Toby number and they can be hired again. So the client and the attorney's um, incentives are actually finally aligned for once. And I think this is a, a fundamental problem with law, particularly on the defense side, that these incentives are so misaligned that it, it causes practices which are against the client's interest. All right. Thank you. That's...
your option sounds quite fair, actually. Uh, I'm sure a lot of lawyers will hate it, but um, they can actually make more money by doing it that way. Because right now, if you're a lawyer, you're limited to how many hours you have in a year, you know, two, two and a half hours, and that's it. You can't build more than that. Um, but with, so the people that do make money in law are people that don't do hourly billing. Like plaintiff's lawyers, they can get huge settlements with personal injury and stuff like that. And guys that do class action because their incentives are not hourly. So taking lawyers off hourly billing, actually they're doing it right. They make a lot more money. All right, thank you. Now let's move to premonition technology. So uh, what applications could premonitions technology have outside the legal industry? Uh, well, there's a bunch. Uh, one of our first things we did is we were going to hire a lobbyist and uh, we both had some like really bad feelings about him, but from completely different areas. And uh, I'm talking about uh, my CEO and I. And I said, you know, if we, well, you know, he's well recommended, he's on this list, he's from a good firm and so on and so forth. And I said, if we would replace the word lobbyist with lawyer, we'd be laughing at ourselves, wouldn't we? Because we're making the same kind of arguments that people that buy lawyers time make. And they're completely wrong and uninformed. So, you know, there's data out there because all lobbyists have to register and things like this. So let me get hold of a data set and I'll just change some of our algorithms to see if we can crunch it. Because you just change a few fields, it's not that hard. And those results are quite illuminating. So even though we don't do much in this area, I can tell you which lobbyists get which bills passed with which committees, agencies, and politicians. And that's a, quite an interesting thing. Uh, we're talking to some clients about doing more analysis of their workers' comp data. And workers' comp is quite interesting because it has a lot of medical data in it. So that, uh, I wrote a proposal that would basically allow us to do money ball for law so we can see which physicians are best, which procedures are best, uh, which adjusters are best, which hospitals are best, which is pill A more effective than pill B. If someone puts you on pill A, is this the kind of thing you get addicted to and they're on it years later or are they able to stop? Um, is it worth paying a bit extra for a client to get a particular type of procedure because it actually gets them back to work, whereas otherwise it wouldn't be. Uh, so basically there's a lot of things that can be done with this, in this area. Uh, we do a lot with insurance companies and they're starting to use us in risk and underwriting. So figuring out how likely someone is to wind up in a lawsuit and uh, insurers underwrite risk historically from historical tables. And most of the time that's great and they make a lot of money. But when the numbers change, it gets very expensive very quickly. And that's a big problem for them. Whereas with our data, they can actually see what the risk is in real time. Uh, and I have some ideas that because things like individual policies are linked with risk pools or linked to insurers or linked to reinsurers and then to insurance and securities that by tossing a bit of machine learning at it, 
you can figure out how someone getting an accident down in South Florida will affect a particular risk pool, will affect a particular company, will affect a reinsurer, will affect, affect uh, insurance-linked securities. And you can actually see into the future because it takes time for these effects to get felt throughout the area. So we would know where pricing was going to move in advance. It's kind of like a crystal ball. Uh, and that might sound a little bit far-fetched, but we've already been able to do this in the stock market. So we were able to prove that uh, the bank's foreclosure performance in litigation was uh, predictive of future relative stock performance. Okay, thanks. Uh, just uh, one question just crossed my mind. Uh, in case of medical data, uh, I guess uh, this kind of data is not public and is actually protected by several acts or, or exactly. something. Yes. Uh, several, yeah, there's HIPAA and, and all kinds of things like that. I mean, the general idea we've had so far is that when clients supply us data, they do not supply uh, any kind of identifying. Uh, basically, they, uh, they anonymize it. So we can't figure out which patients are which. Also, just like Google does with its ads and things like anonymized data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got it. Thank you. All right. So next question. Uh, how does premonition account for the potential statistical biases in the data sets fed to the algorithms? And what may be the most um, impactful, influential biases in data sets of cases, legal cases? Um, we don't actually uh, account for biases at all. Uh, it's public record and we try not to mess with it as much as we can or we'll normalize things. But um, I'm sure there are biases in the court system and that would reflect in our analysis. But we, we don't make uh, we don't make adjustments for it. Okay. Now the next question is quite in line with this. So as premonition shows that certain lawyers have higher chances or lower chances of winning a case before certain judges. Does it point to the fact that judges are or may be biased towards particular lawyers or certain lines of arguments and are, are they in this case somewhat unprofessional? And isn't it bad for a judge to be with such a bias? Uh, I mean, you could say that. I would take a slightly different approach and I'd say that you know, judges are human, just like you and me. And if we're judges and we would have certain biases, I'm sure if I was sitting on the bench that plaintiff lawyers would hate me uh, because I believe that most litigation in America is frivolous and I'd be tossing it like yesterday's sushi. Uh, and then we also have people that are friends of ours and as impartial as we try to be, we're always going to be nice to our friends. And then we also have a kind of memory of what's gone on in the courtroom. And I remember this chap, every time he's come in, he's been bullying, he's been lying, and so on and so forth. 
And if he tells me a new so-called fact, I'm not going to be inclined to believe him. Um, and then there'll be people that present in a certain way. Uh, so one of the things we look at when we're examining judges is their uh, pro se win rate. So if people go before the judge to make an argument themselves rather than hire a lawyer, how likely are they to win? So the uh, kind of mantra in law is, well, if you represent yourself, you have a fall for a client and you should expect to lose. That's not necessarily true. Uh, you usually get a pro se win rate around about 42%. So it's not as good as hiring a lawyer, but it's not terrible. But many judges have 60, have pro se rate rates in the 60s. In fact, there's a court in the UK uh, that was an appeals court. They had their pro se win rate was 75%. So you imagine that the non lawyers are beating lawyers handily all the time. Now, I mean, if you're not a lawyer and you've taken a case all the way to, through to the Court of Appeals, that kind of says you're quite an intelligent and organized person. But typically, pro se people are going to make an argument from equity. So they're going to say that this isn't fair and that's going to be their argument because they don't necessarily know the laws and statutes and precedents. Whereas many lawyers will make an argument based on the law. And there are judges that like to see arguments based on the law. So there's a kind of black letter law judges. And there's also judges that are amenable to an argument based on equity because they see their job is to make sure that things are as fair as possible. So measuring this plaintiff win rate can tell you whether that's, whether that's the way they think. And it kind of gets a little bit into the weeds here, but both of those arguments are actually true. They used to, once upon a time, be a court of law and a separate court of equity. Uh, so you could win in one and lose in another. And then in the late 1800s, both of these courts changed. So that's why you still see lawyers referring to things like my client resolves, reserves their um, remedies in equity and at law, because uh, both are actually okay. And it's also not uncommon to see precedents that are totally at odds with each other. Uh, I'd like to say that for every precedent, there is an equal and opposite precedent. So in the UK, famously, you have Crown versus Brown and Crown versus Wilson, where the set of facts are nearly identical, and yet the outcomes from a legal perspective are completely at odds with each other, yet both are good law. So you'll see some judges that prefer Brown and some judges that prefer Wilson. I personally believe in freedom of choice and the limited role of government. So I prefer Wilson. If you come to me with a Brown-based argument, I'm going to find a way to differentiate you and overrule you. Um, but it's okay to quote both, and they're both good laws. It's, um, it's kind of messy. And... I remember studying law back when I was 19 and I kind of gave up on it because I could never figure out, well, it's either black or it's white, it's this or it's that. 
And when I went back to studying law when I was 40 and went to five law schools at the same time, uh, I was able to kind of conquer that by just accepting that everything was great and nothing was certain. And the best you can do is figure out it's more likely to be this or it's more likely to be that. Um, so yes, so the biases in the legal system with the judges and the people, definitely we found that 30.7% of the average case is the relationship with the judge and the lawyer, and that's average. Is that fair? No. Um, but that's where we are at the moment. I personally believe that every great change of law will come from transparency, and eventually systems like premonition that bring transparency will make justice fairer, but I'm not thinking that that will come up, that will happen quickly, it'll take time. Thank you. Now, uh, moving maybe a bit further in time, away from human lawyers and maybe closer to some science fiction, what do you think about automation and introduction of really AI-based solutions into the legal industry? And will there ever be absolutely unbiased robotic lawyers and robotic judges? Is it possible? Is it good, actually? What do you think? Uh, yes, uh, I'll answer the questions one at a time. And automation in law is inevitable. And at the moment, the law firms are kind of dragging their heels on this while pretending to be uh, enthusiastically adopting it. Uh, law is way too expensive uh, for what it is. And uh, Josh Browder over at Do Not Pay, which is one of the few uh, legal technology companies I have uh, some respect for has he has something like a thousand skills for free so it, his system can do a thousand different things free that normally you'd have to go to a lawyer for and you'll see uh, in-house counsel at corporations are rapidly accepting that they can do a lot of kind of a form-filling work internally I mean don't need to go out to a law firm and there's alternative providers that are actually being able to raise funds to provide these kind of services to lawyers so I see law firms the kind of administrative form filling work going away I think the value of filling out a few forms or checking the contract is going to fall to practically zero in the future and you'll more pay a lawyer for their kind of interpretation of what these systems do rather than for filling in forms and ticking boxes because that's, that's bot work. Um, will there be unbiased robotic lawyers and judges? I kind of think they're always going to have a slight bias to them, but certainly far less than humans. And we actually have a system called Just Text, which can read a pleading or a motion and tell you who's likely to win uh, based on the precedents and statutes that are in it. So uh, when lawyers research precedents right now, the systems will tell them, yes, this particular precedent has been quoted X number of times to this judge, but for God knows what reason. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't uh, they haven't kept track of what happens after that 
So, yeah, it might have been quoted 17 times, but maybe the judge ruled it against it 17 times. Maybe she really hates that. And you kind of need to know before you open your mouth. So we came up with this persuasive precedent system that would basically generate win rates for precedents and apply for a patent for it. Um, and that system could easily be used to take a lot of the drudge work out of the legal system. So for example, you might, you're a lawyer, you might get a call and it says, you file this motion, um, it has a just X score of 17%. So there's an 83% chance you're gonna lose it. Do you still want it heard? Oh, by the way, anything that's less than the 40, 40%, we charge court fees for, you know, there will be fines because we flagged this as being probably frivolous. Um, and that would clear a lot of the docket off. And also, if you're looking at a judge's ruling and you see, well, this has a 97% just text um, rating, i.e. its precedents and things are in line with 97% of the rest of judges, the odds of that case being overturned on appeal are really, really low. So if you have the kind of bots looking over the judges and also you know, judges can use these things to kind of almost spell check and grammar check what they're doing uh, from a legal perspective, I've written something, let me just see if it jibes with the rest of law. Oh, well, yes, it does. Um, and things like that, I, could, I don't see human judges going away ever, but a lot of their tasks could be automated so they could focus on the stuff where they really add the most value. And by bringing this kind of transparency in, you are setting more reasonable standards. So the same case won't go one way before one judge and another way before another. Okay, thanks. Now, again, a bit about the future, but now maybe closest reality. How do you see further evolution of legal industry in general, maybe legal tech also? Uh, what will law firms look like in five or 10 years if they will still exist? And how lawyers' day-to-day -day job will change? Okay, um, I'll answer the, the last two because they basically will answer the first one. Uh, what will law firms look like in five or 10 years' time? I think that Obviously, if single practitioner firms are still likely to be around, I, we are starting to see the death of brand in law. So it's no secret that most of the clients are insurance companies because they get sued the most. And we have come out with a new product called the Panel Report. So it looks at the panel, the lawyers that the firm is providing you. Uh, this is quite an interesting question to ask because let's say you call up your law firm and you say, I have a case before Judge John Kest in Orlando, Florida, and it's a contract case and I'm defending it. I want the best person for that case type of judge. Can your law firm give you that person? Well, the answer is it's highly unlikely because there's 5,000 lawyers in Orlando over a thousand firms. So the odds of that lawyer working for your firm are, are pretty slim. Um, 
we actually have our own law firm now, which can provide clients, any lawyer, on a local council basis, irrespective of what firm they're in. Uh, and that's a big deal for large corporates because they don't want to have to go onboarding thousands of new firms just to get the best lawyer. And so then we go back to this firm again and say, okay, I understand you can't give me the best person, but can you give me your best person? Well, they can't do that either because as we discussed previously, <laughs> the law firms don't keep track of wins and losses. They keep track of hours and billing, but they have no idea who their best person is. So who are they going to give you? They're going to give you the person who's sitting on the bench and isn't billing enough hours right now. Is that person good? Well, maybe they are, maybe they're not. You don't really know. So what this panel uh, report does is it shows you the win rates of the lawyers in that firm and it shows what these firms have been sending over. And they had actually chosen quite a good law firm that had some good people, but the law firm was sending over somewhat random people. Uh, they had some people that were 50% and the 40 and the 33 and the zero. And one guy who'd won four cases in a row, but he took 751 days on average. He was very slow. And then we showed them who they could have got from these firms. And they had a guy with four straight wins at something like 172 days, much quicker. They had a guy with 16 appearances, 81% win rate. Basically, these people were four times as good. And we calculated they would have gone from a 70% overall win rate to 96 without having to change firm. That's significant, you know, 26% performance increase. So we recommended to them, you don't need to change firms. You have good firms. But what you should do is you do a short list of who is acceptable for the firm to send you. So we recommend from this firm that you give them a short list of six. So basically you're not hiring by brand anymore, you're hiring by the people. Now what happens to those other lawyers, I don't know, it's, it's, that's not our, our concern, but that client will no longer hire those lawyers because their numbers aren't good enough. And, and it all starts to tick over because you say, so you're calling one of these lawyers up and you're saying, we've got this uh, matter in your uh, area and we want to hire Jennifer Wang, your third year associate. I said, well, you should really hire Bob because he's a partner and he's a great lawyer. And the answer is, well, you give us Jennifer or we're going down the street. And now all of a sudden, Jennifer's getting a ton of work and law firms have really, really crazy organizational structures that are very different than standard commercial uh, firms. Uh, they have this thing called the rule of thirds. So a third of the money goes to overhead, so the fancy offices and the golf tournaments and all that kind of stuff. A third goes to partners. So the partners take a third of what comes in the door. And a third goes to the person who's actually doing the work. And it's not going to take long for Jennifer to wake up and say, you know, if as long as my numbers stay good, I can quit the firm, work for myself, stay at home in my pajamas, and make triple the money. 
and uh, the firm's going to have to really increase her salary to get her to stay. And then you have other issues where the you may partner in a law firm based on how much you bill, and that has nothing to do with how good a lawyer you are or how often you win. And if you have partners that are sitting around whose clients won't hire them anymore, you have a big problem because these guys are still going to want the salary, they're still going to want the bonuses, and it's going to rapidly, but they're not billing, they're not bringing anything in, and that will rapidly eat into the capital that the law firm has. And that's another problem because law firms are very thinly capitalized. Basically, at the end of every year, the partners take the profits out of the law firm and they leave practically nothing in for tough times, which are going to come in space with transparency. And then they're going to have to do a capital call to put money into the business. And they say everyone has to put in $10,000 or whatever it is, there'll be a couple of people that don't have the money for it. And that's a problem because it means everyone else now has to pay more. And there'll be some people as well I said, if these people aren't paying, then that's not fair. So now I'm not going to pay, which makes it more expensive. The next guy who was going to pay, but now he can't afford it. And then the guy after that says, I see the writing on the wall here. I'm going to make a pragmatic business that I'm not putting in money either which makes it exponentially harder for everyone else to come up with the money. And you get into this thing called uh, an LMX spiral, which is from the Lloyd's market, that's a bit like X-ray, where for every person that pulls out, it makes it exponentially more expensive and it basically puts these firms into kind of death loop. Um, so I see on the litigation side that brand is gonna go away, uh, with a standard company, you do three things when you hit tough times. You fire bad performers, you hire some good ones, and you recapitalize the business. You can't fire bad performers if they're partners and owners of the firm. Yes, you can hire good ones, but traditionally you've not been doing that. You've been hiring them based on things like which law school they went to, which is completely irrelevant to performance. And then finally, Law firms can't recapitalize, at least not easily in, in America, because it's against bar rules. You can't, uh, you can't borrow easily, because it's not like a lender can come and repossess the firm. Uh, so where law firms are able to borrow money, it's at extremely expensive rates, because the default rate is up to 75% for these lenders. And you can't sell equity in a law firm in America. A law firm is not allowed to go public. Uh, if you look at in the Australia and the UK, where law firms do go public, their price equity ratio, like the value of the law firm compared to the profits they make, is around about 20. Whereas in the States, it's 0.5. It's the lowest of every industry I've seen. So you cannot sell shares in the law firm. It's very hard to recapitalize or bring in any more cash. So you're going to see a lot of law firms go to the wall in rapid order, uh, which then will leave the firms that are doing uh, the kind of form-filling law. And one of the problems is 
the firms which tend to specialize in that now, they also do it under the aura of we're a great mitigating firm. So if we do a contract for you and it goes bad, then you know, we can litigate and win and um, you know, put you back where you need to be. And if the kind of litigation arm is now dead, that's very tough. And I see a lot of those firms kind of, they're gonna get digitized and it's gonna be kind of in-house counsel people that will lead the charge of, of that. And a lot of alternative providers like uh, LegalZoom will step in to fill a lot of those gaps. Um, which leads to the last question of how will lawyers' day-to-day -day jobs change? Uh, and obviously, law is, I think, the number two industry that is at risk for automation. The number one industry is accounting. Now, yesterday, uh, we had lunch with our accountant, and he's a very successful chap. Uh, we had lunch at the Breakers in Palm Beach, and then afterwards, he went off to test drive at Aston Martin. Now, are we paying him for filling out forms and crunching a few numbers? A little bit, but we could go to practically anyone for that. The reason why we choose him as, a, as our accountant and why he's very well paid for that is because of the advice he gives us on things like structuring and how we should go about uh, formatting certain kind of deals and you know, other people find his advice very useful and they also pay him a lot of money and that is where i see law going um the non-litigation part because you will have people that kind of use these tools to put together paperwork and for that they'll charge you practically nothing but what they are charging you is their interpretation of these things and their advice. And uh, that, that's where I think things are going to go. Okay, thank you. Now, I've, just, I've got just one last question. Uh, in general, in broad strokes, what plans do you have for premonition? Where are you going to steer the company in the upcoming years? Okay, basically right from the start, we've had a, a three-part plan. Part one was to get the most data, which we've now done. We have more legal data coverage than LexisNexis, Thomson Reuters, and Bloomberg combined. Part two was to become the litigation benchmark, which we've now also essentially done. Uh, speech at PCI, which is the Association of uh, Insurers, to 80 insurance company CEOs. And these guys account for just over half of all litigation spent. Insurers basically own the litigation market. And afterwards, they took a poll of the audience to say what is the best way of finding a lawyer. And 96% of them said their win rate before their case type of judge, um, which before the presentation would have probably been zero. They just saw this is overwhelmingly the obvious choice. So we are now benchmark. Uh, you know, there's about 80 companies that do quote unquote legal analytics, but they just don't have a lot of coverage. Um, you have 
an expensive system, but whenever you type a case in, there's a 97% chance it's not going to be there. That's not terribly useful, no matter how pretty it is. Uh, so we have overwhelmingly more data and coverage than everybody else. We're as big as all of our competitors combined for that. Uh, so premonition is the litigation benchmark. The third thing which we are now starting to do and is starting to, uh, is in beta, is to become the litigation marketplace. Uh, because essentially we're the only people that know how good particular lawyers are for certain cases, for certain judges. And it's foolish to hire a lawyer without knowing how good they are. Uh, particularly that winning and billing aren't really correlated. You don't have to pay more to get a good lawyer. Uh, so in law, there's a standard referral fee for, um, for referring a case over. And lawyers as a group are terrible at sales and marketing, excluding probably the plaintiff for personal injury. Um, so they pay an average of 25,000, so 25% for referring a case. And I think the average case is probably going to run about 100 grand to get into the positions and settle. Uh, so we're talking about a business where we can make $25,000 just for picking up the phone and referring a case, which of course we will automate. Um, and in America, that happens 41,000 times every day. Uh, so you do the maths of potential $25,000 case times $41,000 a day. So 41,000 times a day is a substantial market and we are the only player in that. Um, so we see that will tip the legal market. We have a consumer, sorry, our B2B offering is premonition law and we have a, a consumer offering, which is lawyers by win rate. And they're starting to catch on. And once you hire lawyers that way, you're not going to want to go back to, oh, this guy's billboard is nice. Um, so that's the third bit that we're working on now is to actually be the marketplace itself.